Welcome to this edition of When the Biomass Hits the Wind Turbine, a discussion of sustainable living and what that means to you and me. I'm Jay Warmke. I'm Annie Warmke. You indeed are on this cold, blustery day, and today we're going to talk about the 10 solar innovations that will change the world, or this is the most disruptive technology in the history of mankind, and I do not say that lightly. I would prefer if you could just talk about how we can use solar to make this feel more <laughs> like Jacksonville or Tampa, Florida. Okay, well, global warming's taking care of that for us, so we don't have to worry. Eventually, <laughs> eventually here in southeastern Ohio, we'll have uh, the climate of Atlanta, Georgia. We are having the climate of Atlanta, Georgia, and, and they, it sucks. If they have a foot of snow. All right, so... <laughs> we don't have a foot of snow. All right, so I'm, I'm doing the 10, 10 countdown here, and these all aren't right, really in, in any logical order since since my mind doesn't really work in logical orders but um <laughs> the, the first thing that we're dealing with the first innovation and some of these are going to be real geeky and you're going to wonder why they uh, um are related to i'm going to wonder or the listeners are going to wonder well probably both but <laughs> yeah, um, i'm sure but they will not have the alter to, uh, uh, opportunity to contradict me um, in real time <laughs> Yeah. I get plenty of contradictions um, in, in Well, they can join later. you at Solar Noon Tuesdays if yeah, they want right. to do that. Okay, so anyway, uh, first one is efficiency, efficiency innovations. And those of us who are involved in solar, we understand that um, solar is changing. The technology of solar is changing. Uh, in 1990, you know, which isn't that long ago, you know, 30 years ago, a lot of people I weren't even born yet. They're yeah. always telling me that. Well, I know, but my shoes, I got them in <laughs> 1987 or something. So, and <laughs> I still have You're it. not kidding I either. Know. So anyway, so, so solar panels were about 10% efficient, which basically means that of all the energy that hits a solar panel that's enclosed in the sun, that's, you know, encapsulated in sunlight, only about 10% of that was turned into electricity. The rest of it, 90%, is either reflected off uh, or, or it's um, changed into heat. By 2020, today, the average solar panel uh, is about 20% efficient. So they've doubled in efficiencies. And we're really looking at a 30% efficiency on average within eight or nine years for sure. And well, that may how, be conservative. How about if you explain what efficiency means? Well, I just did. It's, it's the ability for it to transfer sunlight into electricity. How much of the energy that's available gets transferred into electricity. So that's the efficiency. And there are a lot of reasons for it. But solar panels are only about 16% of the total cost of your installed system. But the reason it's important is the more efficient it gets, the less of all the other stuff you need. So if I can install a system with five panels and get the same amount of energy as it used to take 10 panels, now I need less racking, I need less bolts, I need less wire, I need less of everything. So it really does transfer down to, um, you know, if I can get a 50% increase in efficiency on the solar panel, I'm going to get close to a 50% decrease in the cost of my system. Well, one thing, too, is that the other components have actually gotten better. And like microinverters, in 1990, I don't think they were really using microinverters. Uh, that was quite an innovation in the last right. 20 and they years did, or so. They did exist, but they were very expensive. But as you say, yeah. and that leads into item number two, which is lower costs. All lower right. costs for solar. 
Uh, again, when you look back at how much solar cost in the 1970s, we were looking at solar panels that cost in the neighborhood of $100 a watt. So a standard 300-watt panel would have been about $30,000. Well, that's not very practical. Obviously, nobody's going to install that. But California was big. Their government subsidized a lot back in the 70s and early 80s. Yeah, but not in solar. Solar is a technology that's really been only commercially available for about the last 10 years. They did solar thermal, you know, heating up water. But now... But not, but not panels. No, I not guess solar that's panels. what I was talking the about. The world was only really the only customers of solar panels back in the 70s would have been NASA, um, like Exxon bottom, um, or it wasn't maybe Exxon the military. then. Uh, maybe the military, but that would have been pretty leading edge. So we've seen the price go down from $30,000 a panel or, or like $100 a watt down to about 25 cents a watt. So now that 300 watt panel is going to be, you know, $70, $80, which is amazing. And all of these things go, you know, trickle down to all of the installation. And and when you're installing a PV system, only about 40% of the cost of the installation are the materials, like the panels and the inverters and the wire and all that. About 30% of the cost is going to be an installation. And about 30% is going to be in the planning, design, profit, permits, uh, shipping costs, lots of miscellaneous stuff. So uh, what we really have to see and what's beginning to happen is how do we get rid of some of those other soft costs, they call them. Because the hardware costs are coming down, just like the cost of a computer goes down, the cost of solar goes down, the electronics go down. How do we get rid of those soft costs? And there are a few innovations out there. Um, things like um, there's a thing called Solar App, which is uh, sort of a one-size-fits-all application for getting permitting. That's going to reduce the cost of all of these fees that government puts in. Don't they, don't they already do that in places like Australia? Yeah, Australia is a good model to look at what we could do today. Because in the U.S., it costs between two and a half to three dollars a watt to install a, a residential system if you go out and hire somebody. But in Australia, it's only costing between a dollar and a dollar fifty. So you know, less than half the cost, and and they're a pretty you know, their economy is similar to ours. But the reason why everything is so cheap there is, first off, they didn't have these silly tariffs that uh, a recent administration, which will not be named, uh, imposed upon solar and electronics and metal. Um, but then they also have uh, government policies that really try and facilitate people putting solar on their roofs. So they have a national application form, national processes. So, so is this a combination of socialism and republicanism? <laughs> I, I it's don't. like do away with the do away with a lot of the controls, but then you know the government supports it. Yeah, we see a lot of that where we want government off our backs unless it's something I disagree with, then yeah. I want government to step in and make yeah. sure it doesn't happen. So that so. brings up my favorite of the 10 that you're going to talk about today, and that is government mandates. Oh, overreach of government. And we've seen this happen. <laughs> uh, of course, the two that we have uh, currently in the United States, California and Hawaii, both mandate that if you're building a new home, you have to put solar on that home. Yeah, we have a mandate that says if you build a new home, you're not allowed to put it on there. <laughs> we're, we're still waiting for indoor plumbing. But, uh, you know, 
they're oh, there, that's they're there working, uh, you know, on solar. But um, and but this is proven to be very very efficient and effective. And what you find is really when you're building a new home, the cost of solar is inconsequential, you know, to the overall cost of the building. It's a it's like putting marble countertops on in your kitchen. It's it's so cheap compared to the cost of building a new house. In fact, in California, they had a study and they found that it adds on average about $35 to the average mortgage cost, but it saves over $100 in electrical bills. So what what you what happens is if you're mandated to put it on when you build the house, it's just sort of folded into the cost yeah, of the house. Yeah, like like everything. Yeah, you don't have to. You don't think then, about I do I want plumbing or not? Yeah. Well, here in <laughs> here in Appalachia, we do. But, <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> that's not true either. We want plumbing. Uh-huh. We know it's where, a given. Where to put the car up on blocks in the front yard? That's these <gasps> oh, are that's all the a very that's terrible. Okay. Oh, you're but so there, ornery. But there are also several. Uh, other states, in fact, 10 other states that are in the process of looking at this and perhaps implementing it. These are Nevada, Colorado, New Mexico, Texas, Minnesota, my hometown, Michigan, North Carolina, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and Massachusetts. All those liberals, man. Yeah, well, it is, obviously, that's like a blue state, um, you know, um, all-star list, list yeah. here, you know. <laughs> if there was an all-star team, you know, that would be it. But but it's the start. It's the way these things begin, and then they find that these things really work well, and it becomes part of the culture. Um, but what we find, moving on to number four, is that community solar is an option because not every home is suitable for solar. Because your house might be covered in beautiful oak trees, uh, not the house itself, but the lot shading, right. shading. But the isn't building. this illegal in a lot of places? Still? Not, not really illegal, but it does require that the utility participate, and some of these utilities don't want to. So let me back up and explain what it is. Is it says, okay, if I can't put solar on my home, then can't we have a big solar array somewhere else where it is suitable and I can just buy a portion of it. So it's, so it's like a, a co-op kind of thing. Community yeah, like owning solar. a racehorse. Yeah, or owning a part of something. <laughs> yeah. You know, you don't own the whole horse. You just it's own a, a, own a share. Yeah. And, and uh, so what has to happen then is the utility has to say, oh, okay, you've got 10 panels over here in this 1,000-panel array. We're going to allocate that production to your electric bill, which is why the utility has to be involved. Um, if they're not willing to be involved, then they're, you know, it's You're not going to happen. Yeah. But some states like Minnesota said, hey, if you want to be a utility in our state, you've got to do this. So as, as a result, like 40% of all the installations have become community solar. And a lot, from existing utility companies. Yeah, and in fact, a lot of utilities are finding that it's good business for them because instead of them having to finance a solar array to add to their generation portfolio, they just go to their customers and say, hey, you want to pay for this thing we're going to build? We'll give you a share of it. And so a great number of the community solar projects are actually instigated and and run by utility companies. And to give you a sense of how this is growing, in 2010, which is only 10 years ago, there was one community solar project in the United States. Now there are more than a, a thousand, and they're anticipating that over the next five years, we'll see enough community solar installed to power 650,000 homes. 
But so, none of those are going to be in Ohio, are they? Oh, no, no, no. They will. I mean, we're seeing some of the co-ops. You know, you already have a co-op, and if they want to do a community solar project, they just go to their members. It's already a membership socialist little organization for well, all, us, the all us country that people. That is the theory. Yeah, but then they can say, okay, well, we don't want to finance it. We don't want to... Um, um, you know, get ourselves in debt over this, but we'll sell subscriptions. And once we've got enough people, we'll build the thing. Mm -hmm. And then their customers will pay for their, for their solar. And we see this happening all over the place. And Ohio is, is going to be no different. The, the thing that's discouraging though, is that our co-op is still writing openly in their monthly magazine against solar yeah well we got to slap them around a little bit but we'll <laughs> we'll get them they'll come they'll come begging grudgingly into the 19th century i hope i live to see it <laughs> all right so number five number five is variable pricing now we're really getting into the geek oh woods. what's that mean well basically what it means is currently when you buy your electricity you typically pay a set price for the electricity. So you're paying 12 cents a kilowatt hour, whether you use it at three in the morning or you use it at three in the afternoon, oh, it yeah. doesn't matter how much it costs. But for the utility, it matters a great deal when that power is being used because they run their low cost, high volume power plants when there's what they refer to as base load. Um, but then when all of a sudden there's a spike in demand, like everybody turns on their air conditioners on a hot August afternoon, the cost of their electricity just goes through the roof. They've got to turn on power plants that are more expensive to run. They've got to bring in more people and pay them time and a half. They've got to buy power on the open market. So they're often paying more for it than they're selling for it. So they're getting into a variable pricing model where they say, depending on when you use the power, we're going to charge you different prices for it. So if you use power in the middle of the night, we may charge you only six cents a kilowatt hour. But if you use power in the early evening when everybody's using power, we're gonna charge you 25 cents a kilowatt hour. And what that does is it begins to change people's behaviors. So they say, well, I don't really care when I run my dishwasher. Why don't I set it to run at two in the morning when it's cheaper to run? or when I wanna heat my hot water, or when I wanna charge my electric vehicle. All of these loads are not necessarily time dependent, but we don't care, we don't pay attention to when they're running because, you know, it just, uh, we don't, we get charged the same amount one way or the other. Well, I'm gonna interrupt you because here is our little break. Okay. I'm rambling here, but uh, I wanna remind everybody that you're listening to When the Biomass Hits the Wind Turbine with Jay and Annie Warmke, reminding you it is indeed the end of the world as we know it. And thank God. Thank God, okay, so I'm, I'm only with number five and we're right at the break. But, but I, I, want to, I want to say that one of the things that seems to uh, hold hope for uh, some real cultural change would be the variable pricing because we know psychologically during from studies that when people have more awareness about their behavior for example what something costs sure uh they will change their behavior to to um 
Yeah, they certainly work will. with that. Especially if it's in their financial interest. Yeah. Which brings us to the next one, number I know, but six. before you go there. <laughs> I'm never going to get through 10. <laughs> I wonder what, the, what you think are the long-term ramifications of this. It's going to change the world as we know it, and thank, thank God. God. Oh, right. man, a smart aleck so, <laughs> in every crowd. All right. So the next one, number six, is battery technology. And this should really not come as a surprise to anybody. But what we've seen is a growth of lithium-ion batteries, which personally I think is a bridge technology. It's going to get us through the next decade or so, but something else better is going to supersede it. But we've seen the cost of lithium-ion batteries drop from $1,200 a kilowatt hour of storage just 10 years ago to $150. So basically one-tenth, a little bit more than one-tenth the cost of what it was 10 years ago. And we're looking at it dropping to about $62 a kilowatt hour by 2030. So this has a lot of ramifications, but when you get into time of use pricing, you know, if, if I've got a solar array and energy is abundant in the middle of the afternoon, but very expensive when the sun goes down from the grid, well, if I've got some batteries, I just store it and use it. So what I'm doing is basically shifting sunlight by a couple of hours. And by doing that, I've cut my uh, electric bill dramatically. So if you look at that society-wide, it's amazing. It's amazing. So, so we see batteries not only <laughs> being used. <laughs> yeah, we're seeing them not only being used like UPSs, like the power goes down, I still got power, but shifting loads and shifting them because of the way the utilities bill. What's a UPS? A UPS, an uninterruptible power supply. Okay. You know, it's the thing that keeps your computer going in case the power goes out. Right. You, you science guys use data. all these acronyms. I'm it's also a delivery service. I know that. I was thinking, that. wait a minute. <laughs> okay, so the next one feeds right into that, which is electric vehicles. Yeah. Yeah, now this is going to be something that everybody is going to notice, even even those people who are who are living life unaware. But also maybe not even have an option. Well, you'll have an option. I mean, people keep cars for a long time. I mean, you know. Well, and they're going they're keeping them longer now. Sure. And and because they're better. I mean, they've been better built, so they're going to last a bit longer like your old Chevy Love pickup truck that that literally crumbled, you know, as you're driving down the road. You it can, helped you to watch the pavement. Yeah, you you can, <laughs> you can you see, you can through see the potholes, you know. Hey, that was a good right. truck. So anyway, so uh, in in 2015, which is only five years ago, there were almost none, almost no electric vehicles on the road. We're up to 5 million by 2020. They're looking at 100 million by 2030. Look at this progression, zero to five to 100. And by 2040, 400 million vehicles. In fact, they're estimating by 2040, electric vehicles will represent about 35% of all of the vehicles on the road. So we're slowly, slowly moving, well, not so slowly, very quickly moving to an electrical uh, transportation industry. Well, I bet there'll be more than that because I think there's a trend uh, that people are driving less and owning less vehicles. They're moving to cities. They can't afford to have a, a vehicle. And so electricity may be, may be uh, powering lots of different kinds of vehicles, sure. but I, I don't I don't think we're going to have as many cars. Well, these estimates the are from Bloomberg. And, you know, experts are wrong about pretty much everything. So <laughs> we'll see how that plays out. But it's interesting. Not only is it going to change the, the transportation industry, moving it in large measure away from oil 
um, to, to electricity, whatever form we get electricity, and that's increasingly moving to solar and wind. But there's also this thing known as V2G, vehicle to grid, or V2H, vehicle to home. So if you wanted to incorporate batteries into your solar array, well, why not drive them? You know, use your electric vehicle as your battery backup. So that let's say you're at home, I use that scenario where sunlight is available, energy is cheap in the middle of the afternoon, but it becomes more expensive in the evening when the sun goes down. Well, you've just driven back from work where you had your electric vehicle plugged into your office outlet, so you basically stole electricity from your employer, <laughs> just like you used to steal pencils and things and paper clips. Well, now you've stolen electricity, and they gave it to you because you were helping them out in other ways I can't get into. But when you come home, you plug your car in, and now your car is a battery backup for your home. Well, that works on the home level where you're now running off the power that's been stored in your vehicle. But it also works on a grid level where, you know, if we've got 400 million electric vehicles plugged into the grid, well, they charge from power on the grid, but they can also discharge. They're a battery backup system for the electrical grid. And that's going to be amazing. That's going to change yeah, everything. But again, there's so many changes between then and between now and then in that we may not even need to plug in. We may have the car may be able to generate its own energy or gather energy as it drives. I mean, there are so many innovations. And yeah, one of the likely. exciting things that's happening right now, even just in the last with the change of administration in this country is that we are going to walk more towards those kind of innovations because the government's going to invest in people and research and and those kinds of thinking because we have to conserve. Well, I wouldn't lay it all on the government. I think t the industry is going to find there's an advantage. I can envision, you know, right now you've got a plug and you plug it into your car um, and it's plugged into your home. And that's a little bit cumbersome because different vehicles like Tesla's plug doesn't match uh, other people's plugs, just like Apple doesn't match, you know, Android phones and all of that. But I could see a time in the not too distant future where you have charging parking spaces and you just simply pull up and then energy transfers from the undercarriage oh, of the vehicle. Thought. What a horrible thought. Well, not really bad unless you lay down in this parking well, spot. Electricity. Let it, yeah, but it's very, very low human. level and very short distance. So <laughs> we already have that with your phones. You can set your phone on a little charging pad. I know it. And it'll charge it up. Well, why not do that with cars? And then it's just a logical extension to where as you're driving, the phone or the roadway can be electrified. I don't know how practical that is that because our, our roadway can't even keep from having <laughs> 700 foot potholes in it. But, uh, you know, we'll see how that works. And then that takes us. Now we've got all these electric vehicles. Well, then we've got the smart grid. And the smart grid is envisioned that let's make this grid that was essentially the same as it was developed by Thomas Edison. It really hasn't changed in a hundred years. You know, we've updated a little bit, but it really has not changed dramatically. And let's make it smarter. You know, right now, all the grid has ever focused on is reacting to loads as they happen. When someone turns on a light switch, you've got to provide power. That's right. There's the emergency race in there and get the electricity. Yeah, going. but now we've got, now we've got um, uh, people generating their own power and it's integrated into the grid. So we've got power management as well as load management. 
and we've got the advent of, of little islands of, of opportunity. Then you've got variable pricing where you say, okay, I want to manage the loads to better correspond with the available power. So if you're relying on solar, you want things to run when the sun is shining and you don't want them to run when it's not. If you're relying on wind, you want things to run when the wind is blowing, not when it's not. And then you've also got the technology improvement of long distance transmission. So uh, we, could, we could literally, if you were to send power from Iowa, a wind farm in Iowa, to New York City, well, you're only going to lose about um, 4 to 5% of the energy, uh, getting it all the way from Iowa, halfway across the country. You lose that much getting it from your local transmission station to the outlet. So long-distance uh, transmission of electricity is very, very practical. In fact, people always say about renewable energy, the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow. And I always say, yes, it does. Somewhere. Somewhere. Somewhere, <laughs> somewhere mighty Casey, the wind is blowing. You know, so, so you can transfer it over great distances if you need to. So you, you're, it, think of it like the Internet. Right? Do you care if the file server that you're connected to is in Australia or in Columbus, Ohio? It doesn't matter. The amount of transmission time involved is, is static. The costs involved are static. You, it's, it's transparent to you. So you don't really care where your energy is generated from. Okay, we're coming down to the last two. Bum, ba, da, bum, right? <laughs> so item number nine is sort of a variation on this, is, is the emergence of microgrids. And microgrids are sort of smaller pockets if you think of, of energy and usage. So if you think of your home, and now I put a solar panel on my home or a solar array on my home, now I'm kind of my own little world of energy. I'm connected to the grid but I'm, I'm in my own little world too, if I need to be. Well, why not expand that to a college campus? Let's say this is being recorded at Ohio University. Well, Ohio University could have their own generation source, solar, hopefully, and then they can supply their own needs, but they're connected to the greater grid sort of like a local area network connected to the internet and everybody supports everybody yeah well you're 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 self-sufficient right but if you need a backup you got an insurance policy right there. and there's no need to expand the grid as much as we've had to in the past because you're only dealing with the over under you know if ohio university needs a little bit of electricity it's going to come from the grid um in in the past all of it's come from the grid so you've reduced the load on a grid that's that's already taxed. Then, number 10, dun, 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 dun. virtual utilities. Oh, man. So the utility of the future will look more like Facebook than AEP. Um, we think of a utility as they've got power plants, they've got distribution lines, they've got transmission lines, and then they've got a billing department, right? <laughs> well, and boy, do they have a, a building building department. department. <laughs> so anyway, so so they're kind of vertically integrated. Well, if I can buy access, let's use Apple as an example. If Apple can buy access to the grid, then if I'm generating extra power from my array, I can sell it through Apple's marketplace to anybody out there. 
So Apple could very quickly become the largest utility in the country or in the world, having no ownership of any infrastructure at all. Just like corporate America. Well, yeah. I mean, we've seen that with Facebook, with Google. I mean, yeah. obviously they've developed some infrastructure, but they, they originally came from um, just selling air, selling ideas, yeah. selling nothing. All right. Well, speaking of selling nothing, we've come to the end. You've been listening to When the Biomass Hits the Wind Turbine with Jay and Annie Warmke. We want to thank our Emmy Award-winning producer, Adam Rich, who is never nothing, always something, right? <laughs> and thank you for spending just a little bit of time with us. And as your grandmother hopefully told you, the secret to a happy and sustainable life is... Play nice with others, clean up your own mess, and Jay, you've got to eat more vegetables. It's winter. Till next time. You can find more information on living sustainably in our unsustainable world at blueroxstation.com.